everyone. This is Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Elena. I'm Zach, and today we are thrilled to have Richard Blanco with us. Mr. Blanco is an award-winning poet and author who performed at President Obama's second inauguration. Born in Cuba and briefly a resident of Spain and New York City, Mr. Blanco grew up in Miami and initially trained as a civil engineer before returning to school to train as a poet. Mr. Blanco's career is distinguished. He is the fifth poet to perform at a presidential inauguration, following prolific poets such as Maya Angelou and Robert Frost. As the product of a mixed cultural background, his verses probe sharply questions that are universal. Where am I from? Where do I belong? Who am I in this world? Mr. Blanco, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So just to start us off, a question we usually like to ask since this is student run is just an inflection point in your life. Uh, that maybe has gotten you to where you are today? Um, in terms of career or, or just in general, whatever that may be? Whatever that may be. Well, you know, um, um, I think that there was one particular one in poetry. Um, I had I, I studied engineering and I was a practicing engineer. I really started writing late in life around 25. <laughs> and I started just sort of, sort of circling around it and took a little class here and there and started sort of diving into it a little bit more and more, sort of testing the waters. And I was reading this poem in my mother's house where I was still living. <laughs> um, it's a, probably a poem everybody has read in high school, uh, the, this, this really small poem, The Red Wheelbarrow, which is so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater besides the white chickens. So I'm reading this in the Florida room, right? And looking at my mother who's cooking, um, you know, in the kitchen next, you know, right through the, in the room next door, it's like open floor plan. And she's dicing onions and dicing uh, peppers and in the same apron that I always remember her in with the tomato stains and not sharpening those dull knives yet once again, like <laughs> I almost remember all my life. And, and I just realized what poetry was. It was it was finding the extraordinary and the seemingly ordinary parts of our lives, right? And knowing that your story matters, that in a farm, a little red wheelbarrow does have a whole story and a whole meaning behind it. And just like that, my mother, so much depends upon my mother slicing onions in her, in her tomato stained apron, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was real. It was one of those moments that I will always remember all my life and, and really made me commit to poetry from that moment forward. It's kind of mm. gut poetry, so to speak. <laughs> Clearly, stories play a crucial role in you making poetry, and you're very thoughtful about the stories that you decide to include. So how do you decide which stories to include and to write about and which ones you keep for yourself because they're private? All right. Um, well, I should say I, I don't think there's really – if you're an artist, I, I think thinking of yourself as for a public or private is not um, – probably uh, – not a good practice because you never know what you think is private is can actually make an amazing story and it's not as private as you think. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, uh, you know, I commit myself to the art and whatever the art makes me want to write or demands that I write. Right. It's almost like another Richard Blanco who's the poet. Right. Um, so, uh, I think that's important, uh, because I think we, we, you never know till you write it, right. You never have to publish it if you don't want to. So you never, but you never know till you write it. It might be your masterpiece, right? <laughs> to self-censor might not be a good thing, but how I decide what to write about in general has to do, um, uh, in some ways there's a sort of an adage that says a poet is writing one poem of their life. Right. And there's usually some set of core 
some some something really important in your life that sort of the seat of everything that sort of connects to it, right? For me, it's always been the question of home and belonging and identity since I was a little kid, right? Not that I was act, asking those questions at three years old, but they were imprinting me, right? Um, being feeling feeling from an immigrant exile family growing up in Miami as a gay kid, you know, it, it just was there. And so in a way, even when I try to not write about that, or when I think I'm not writing about that, eventually the story comes back to those core questions. And and it's an, a, like an obsession. It's like, a, it's just your, your, your sort of your major theme. And that's how I decide. I mean, I could write about the little bird in the window, but unless, unless the bird somehow starts asking questions about home or place, and eventually it will in my poem, right? And so I just learned to watch out for things like that. So when I see something that catches my attention or a memory that comes back to me, uh, you know, this is probably in some ways has to do about the same thing. So it's not about answering that question because I think it's just about dimensioning that question, right? And adding more questions to it. So one of my personal philosophies is that, you know, good art answers questions. Great art asks them. So I'm just always asking that question. So, I mean, do you think that you are answering that question? Like the questions that you generate? Or is it like, as you write, like, is it a sense of self-exploration or self-definition? Or is it still just um, kind of, ex- or I guess, discovering what you don't know in a sense. It's a, it's a discovery. It's it's a discovery of what you don't know yet, okay. <laughs> right? Or discovering another dimension. You might discover some piece of it, right? I mean, we obviously are, are knowledge-based if we study something long enough, right? For me, it's what is home, right? You start adding, you know, you start adding to an understanding of that, but it doesn't mean you find some de- definitive answer. Every mm-hmm. poem is is an opportunity to 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 find another dimension of home. I'll give you an example. Um, I had never thought that being gay had anything to do with finding home or being Cuban. And it wasn't until my third book that I realized, oh my God, like that sense of belonging that a little gay kid, teenager, always feels like sort of in the wrong place at the mm-hmm. wrong time always, like that wanting to sort of connect with a place that that I could belong to, you know, that wasn't a homeland, wasn't a country per se, but that was also another sense of home. And so I started writing about my sexuality and my experiences connected to that same longing, right? So it was a discovery I didn't know that connected, right? I didn't know until yeah. I started writing about it. So um, the process of art is both very specific and universal at the same time. I think that it's not, um, it begins with a sort of really personal quest, but you also realize that you are an artist, right? If you're committed, whether that's being a painter or a writer or a singer, that at the end of the day, it's about, in a way, transcending your own story to create something that's universal, ironically, because you're so specific about it, right? If you tell your story the way art demands that you tell it, then something else happens. There's there's a transcendent spirit, right? It happens to us in all arts, right? We go see movies and we connect with, not because they're about our lives, right? There could be completely other settings, places we've never been, family we've never met or even thought about. But underly, underneath all that, there's the core emotions that we connect with, love, loss. And so that's where, that's where I try to get to. But it does begin with the personal because you're a human being, experiencing in this world, right? Mm-hmm. 
How do you make sure, like you said, you talk, you make sure to include certain themes in, in your writing and certain emotions that you think are universal. How do you go into writing a poem acknowledging that you want to, you know, have this certain transcendence and be universal, but also be yourself and like be yourself in your writing? I mean, I just think it's a, it's a lot of, um, you know, first of all, there's a, a lot of just learning the basics first, right? Like any, like any activity, like learning how to play football you first have to learn with the rules of the game and you kind of and then rehearsing and practicing and building your strength and your stamina stamina <laughs> and all the rest so um i think at some point it becomes instinct right and so i don't really necessarily consciously think about it so much i just trust the process right i've done it enough times it doesn't mean that sometimes i drop the ball figuratively speaking and it's not that every poem sometimes i still make the, write those poems that do not transcend. I'm so caught up in my own world, right? So it's about trusting, having instinct, and trusting the process itself will work it out. And also feedback is very important because sometimes you think a poem or a, is there and not till you have someone in a workshop give you feedback, go, oh, this isn't doing what I thought it, or this is doing something so magnificent, I didn't even know it was doing it, right? So that's important because it, it is in a way so grounded in the personal that the process of sort of making art out of it gets a little muddied, right? It gets a little cloudy. So um, I just trust the process and then I've been writing for, you know, 25 years. So um, I just know that that's like, even when I, I don't, even when I try not to write about home and place, it ends up right. Even the inaugural poem that I read for, uh, wrote and read for uh, at Obama's inauguration, I thought that had nothing to do with home. I thought that was just about a poem about our country, and the second to last, the the last stanza begins. Still, we head home through the gloss of rain or the weight of snow or the plum blush of dusk, and the whole poem is about our yearning to come home to our figurative home, to come home to America, to finally belong under one roof. I was like, damn it, there I go again. Like, there's the <laughs> home again. And so. <laughs> gotcha. And and I want to talk about something that's um, in your bio. It's the travel you did um, when you were, like, between 25 and 35, it seems like. Mm -hmm. It says that you went to um, Spain, Italy, France, Guatemala, Brazil, Cuba, and New England which isn't so quote unquote exotic as the other countries. Like, what did you, what did you find there? What did you find in other places? How did you choose the places you were going to? Right. Um, so what happened is um, after um, New England is exotic for me, <laughs> like because I grew up in Miami. So Miami is a very culturally isolated bubble, right? Mm -hmm. It's almost the reverse takes place, right? It's like the, the one or two quote unquote, you know, Americano kids in my class were the ones that got picked on because they had weird last names like Smith and Johnson, right? So it was like a, a reverse sort of um, situation, which was very empowering and very nurturing, uh, but at the same time very confusing because that wasn't a picture of what I thought that the United States should look like. So going to New England was finally opening up that story, you know, that history book pages like when all those men in those white wigs and like with the but with those pilgrim shoes like yeah. i i it was a, a country that i belonged to but i had never really seen it none of my neighbors looked like any of the people on tv ate the same foods as people on tv or movies or or commercials so to me it was in a weird way exotic right hmm. um and or, or i should say not exotic but just something 
it was very curious to see this country that supposedly I belonged to that wasn't around my block, right? Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. Um, when I finished my first book, I went, uh, during the process of finishing my first book, I went to Cuba. So Cuba was another mythical place I had never been to, right? It was this, it was all just stories and photos from my, you know, and family gossip about this, that, and the other about Cuba. And it was all memory. It was all nostalgia. Uh, so I got to see that for the first time, like see where my grandfather's house was, like see the cane fields that my dad would cut, right? And yet there's an incredible sense of, of attachment and fulfillment and a lot of blanks being filled in. But at the same time, there's this emptiness of the American part of me, right? That never really seen New England. So that's when I moved to New England too. I was like, what? wait, okay, so there's this Cuba, I get it, but there's still this other piece I need to explore. And so that, and then I realized that those, my, my imaginary versions of both those places don't really exist, right? The Cuba of my parents doesn't exist anymore. The New England that I thought it was from, you know, the perfect little, you know, place with like where everything you know liberty and justice for all and all that bunch of stuff <laughs> that that didn't really exist either right so like i moved to hartford and hartford is one of the largest enclaves of puerto ricans in the united states was right in hartford so like i was like oh wait this is much more complex than i thought it was right so then i thought well it's not that mythic america it's not that mythic cuba well, let me just travel around the world because now maybe home is Venice. Maybe home is London. Maybe home is Brazil. Maybe home is, who knows, maybe it's this other place that I haven't been to yet and that I'm going to feel at home. And, of course, I realized that was also a, a sort of a, a dead end in a way because I was still working on some ideal form of what home meant, right? There's this great quote by Pascal that says, um, that was another sort of inflection point in my life. I was doing all this traveling. I read, the, read, read this quote by Pascal. It says, the sole cause of a man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. <laughs> and I interpreted that to me like, what am I chasing here? Like home, to use a cliche, is home is where your heart is, right? And home is what we make out of place, right, sometimes. Um, and so that changed the question. You know, that changed, that got me thinking about home in another context, right? Um, so yeah. <laughs> um, like I've, I've talked to you about, I'm Mexican American. And so navigating the right. bicultural experience of being of those two identities has always been something that I've struggled with. So what advice do you have to, to listeners who might be navigating that same cultural experience from being from the States, but also kind of having their hearts in a different country too? Yeah. Um, I, I think I think the best advice that took me a while to understand was to know that your story is really valuable, and it's valuable more, to more people and beyond beyond people that you think it's valuable to, right? Um, and it took me it took me writing to actually figure, you know really believe that. And I think we often grow we often grow up feeling the other, or as I did, and feeling that there was this America we're supposed to belong to, or or you know be asked to belong to, right? And and um, or this other homeland that we're supposed to belong to, but do we really? You know, how much of that is really? So you got to ask those questions and realize that all that questioning is the story, and that it's a very valuable story, especially where we are today in the world. Right? The world is the question of home is becoming even more and more complex because of our economies are tied. 
we're 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 biologically, you know, I've I've seen students whose father's Brazilian and mother's from Shanghai, you know, so the world is much more connected. It's uh, the economies are modes of transportation, communication. My cousins come from Cuba, and in a week they're you know they're doing FaceTime with <laughs> with the family back home. So even immigration has changed, right? What that means has changed the world. And, and it's actually a little more confusing than just having this choice of homeland or or not, right? Or United States or not. It's 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 a, it's a really interesting and confusing story. And I think you have to just believe that that's a template for all humanity in a way, because this is the question we're ultimately trying to figure out. How do we be one people, and not just the United States? I mean, I think it's about how are we going to be one globe to you know avert another you know a. a an apocalypse or avert, you know, the planet from, you know, from destroying the planet and ourselves with it, right? If there's no cooperation. And so I think it's happening on many levels. And then on many levels, there's still this other faction of the world that believes that the singular narrative, the dominant narrative is the only one that matters, right? When in reality, history has been written by all these other narratives as well, as much so. I think it's interesting. It happened to me at the inauguration. I mean, I'm, I'm looking out, reading this poem to a million people on the National Mall. And I realized at that moment that even I still felt that my story, even though I was a poet and had three books and awards and blah, 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 there's some little part, a small part of me that still felt I needed, I wasn't part of this narrative. This, my story wasn't that important. And I realized, actually, that is a huge part of the American story. All those people that feel that they're not part of it is actually a very big part of it. So just know to value that story and explore it and ask it and, um, and ask it of others, right? Because people just have fascinating stories. And it's not just also just about your story, right? <laughs> ask so-and-so a little more deeper question about, oh, I'm Mexican. What does that mean? Like, what part? Where'd you, where'd you grow up? You know, <laughs> where'd you press in? Like, how did you move around, right? Like, what's going Like, there's so many layers to our story. So I think that, that conversation is also another way of connecting with people and realizing there's more underneath the surface than we think. And you'd be surprised when you start asking. And one of the most universal questions, right, is where are you from, right? And that, that creates a whole, con right, that's like, that could be hours with somebody, right? You talked about like the sort of human project in your in your view is like how to live as one people, um, either to prevent a future disaster or problem, um, or or just to live together. Like, what do you think is something that helps or hurts um, that project that you've seen in your experience? Um, I think. Or when um, have you like really gotten through to someone, or or learned something from them, or I had think, them change? Yeah, I think one of the keys is art. Um, um, arts have a different dialogue and a different dynamic with folks. Um, art, arts open up a different conversation uh, that's in some ways less threatening and less uh, and more human, right? And so um, I think what art does, um, it puts a real human face, a real human life, real stories, real names, real places, real people into what are these abstract politicized issues, right? So you can talk about you can talk about diversity, right, as an abstraction, right? But read the work of diverse poets, right? And like see how diverse they are, but also how universal their lives are in terms of loss experience, you know, like 
love, hate, and all the rest. And I think that builds a different kind of bridge and an understanding that just throwing an abstraction or just throwing abstractions at each other sort of doesn't doesn't always move. Sometimes the line st stays in the middle, right? It doesn't move that doesn't move doesn't move the it doesn't move in any uh, significant direction. So I think arts really should play a big role, um, not just for us as individuals, but in the classroom in terms of how do the arts let us think about the world, right? Whether that's literature or painting or drama or music, how, you know, because the real record of human history, the what I should say is like the the real emotional record of human history is only told through art. History books are just written by the winners, right? <laughs> but art still is about being an emotional historian. So there's a lot that can be mined from that. I think what we're seeing, um, um, you know, I, I don't consider myself a poet of, a political poet or a poet of protest, though in some ways I am, though in some ways every poet is because they're thinking about something beyond their own comfort zone, right? They're just thinking about how to connect humanity in some way to themselves and to each other. Um, but I think there's, you know, there's when the poetry is a bridge builder or builds a bridge, I think is the most important aspect. I mean, it gets to, to the question of how do you write about your personal self, but also me, it's all in that same dynamic. Um, I think what we're seeing that's hurting that story right now, um, or that project, as you say, um, is that to me, ironically, it's, you know, being, being diverse is on the, on the, on the way to being homogenized in a way, right? There's an irony in that, right? So it, being inclusive also means in a way, a certain amount of homogenized, I can't say that word, <laughs> being homogenized to a certain degree, right? And that can be that can be weird and scary too, because it's human nature to want to feel different and and in a way not be killed for being different, not being you know raped for being different, or being like you know chastised for being different, or being hung for being different, right? But we want to feel a sense of identity, right? Um, and I think that when we see in a in a world that I think there's a natural narrative that's more about growing together that's not an agenda, I think, of anybody except nature, right? Um, or evolutionary, uh, social evolution, I guess. There are those people that believe that there should be only one ruling dominant narrative. And I think where it acts out of and where art understands that that's out of fear. Mm -hmm. That in a weird way is the human nature is like, I am going to control all this because I'm not gonna be wiped out in this homogenization right and that's what we're seeing in the united states that's what we're seeing in other parts of the world this pendulum swing towards like like brexit oh no we're not part of europe like what <laughs> like, <laughs> like your histories are intertwined for thousands of years but suddenly you're not part of europe right where you've been claiming somewhat that for centuries right so um so, but if you look at it in the context of trying to understand where that comes from and not just putting, not just, you know, putting, not just sort of kicking back, but if we really understand where the problem lies, it's that, it's that, that's, that's scary.
it's scary for some scarier for some people. I think when you're an immigrant, when you're an, when you're a person who has diverse background, you get that rather quickly, right? And you realize you're not as in, you're actually ironically not as intimidated of other cultures because in a way, you understand that different people have different stories, and we can all sort of share those stories, right? You or at least you you hope, right? Um, so I think that's 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 where I think we're at, and I think it it might be one of the last as. Uh, as they say, the light is the light is brightest before it's vanishing. <laughs> like, I think I'm stealing that from some poet, but it's like this last big hurrah to sort of cling to that one narrative of the white male is like the one narrative, right? Um, and I think it's the last sort of. Uh, hopefully, it's the last, or not the last, but at least a, hopefully, a, ironically, a tipping point that makes us once and all, at least in terms of our country, makes us all once a big step to really just say no this is who we are we're not those people anymore right um and that's okay and nobody's nothing bad is gonna happen right but i'm an optimist <laughs> the last question we ask all of our guests is what is your personal definition of success and how would you help students define success for themselves cool um i guess um i can answer that in a sort of a very microscopic way. Um, to me, as a writer, um, success only means one thing. And that's the, this little moment when you're writing your little poem, your little pajamas and <laughs> by the fireplace. And you have this incredible moment of discovery about something that you hadn't known to treasure or mourn or love or hate. And it, that it happens through the writing. And there's this moment where you actually step outside, where you realize the poem is its own thing now. And the poem starts telling you what to write in a, in a figurative way. Um, that little thing, that's what keeps me addicted to poetry. That those little, what is seemingly a little teeny victory is actually a little teeny success, is like what all the other great successes are based on is in that little quiet moment. That's the only reason I go back to writing. Not for the awards, not for the books, because not. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like that's not that's not that that's not great and worthwhile to shoot for. Yeah, I want to write a book. Yes, I'd love for it to win an award, but that doesn't keep you. Those successes are fleeting, right? That's not really, that's not really the the high of writing because it just goes away, right? Um, I remember the first when I got notice of my first book of poetry was accepted to be published. I was like so excited and like, imagine what a great feeling. And like the next day I went to the bookstore and like I looked where my book saw where my book was gonna be, you know, alphabetically in the poetry section, which is about only two shelves long. <laughs> right? Um, and I was right next to Blake, William Blake. I was like, Oh God, well, <laughs> I guess a lot a lot of people have done a lot bigger things than Fulman's first book of poetry, and I thought, damn. I still gotta keep on working. And it's true. Like that that moment, yeah, it was great to get it for but like you know, here's Blake, you know, hundreds of years of worth of, of writing, right? Uh, I, that's still being written, read, read today. I was like, yeah, I think I got a little more work to do. <laughs> so, but it is those quiet moments that I define success by because they're the only thing that really sort of gives me a real sense of grounding and um, satisfaction and connection. And it keeps me sane because you can imagine after the inauguration how crazy, you know, 
being sort of uh, sort of a poet and very much in the public eye and sort of being abstracted your personality too and um you know it can be very disorienting as much as it's a beautiful blessing it can be very you know be, be a little disorienting and i always come back to that moment to those quiet moments well unfortunately that's all the time we have for today but thank you so much mr blanco for coming on the show um and to all our listeners out there remember to stay hungry <laughs> <laughs>